So today is Palm Sunday, and which uh, it's just an gr- uh, exciting part of the year for the Christian, um, because we now got what the church often calls Holy Week, and we go through to Good Friday and then Easter Sunday, and this is the the big week in our year, in a sense. A lot of the the heavy lifting happens in this week when it comes to the life and death of Jesus, and it's a really exciting time of year for a Christian. So we wanted to spend a couple of Sundays looking at why and what is at the center of the Christian message. And we're going to do that today through Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have a Bible, could you turn to Isaiah 53? I don't think we have it up here today. Um, So you actually need to reach for a Bible or turn your phone on and go to your... Thank you, Levi. Excellent waving of the phone there. Um, So yeah, have a look at Isaiah chapter 53. This is a, a poem that was written 700 years before Jesus died. And obviously, normally, if you write something about the death of a famous person, you write about it after they've died. But this one is written seven centuries before, and it's one of the most moving and powerful passages in the whole of Scripture. And I think it expresses the drama and the triumph of the cross more dramatically than any other passage, really. It's certainly up there in the top three or four passages in the Bible for articulating what it is that Jesus does when he dies for us. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's a great passage to consider and just to hear read, really, because it's one of those passages that focuses on the very center of the Christian faith and not on some of the stuff that goes around the edges, which sometimes we do talk about. If you're new to faith, you're new to the church, you're new to this church, you might find some of our jargon kind of confusing or bizarre or some of our practices or some of the things we say and do. You might think, I don't know why they do that. I don't get that. That seems odd to me. And sometimes that's true of us too. Like we don't always understand all of those things either. But this, what we're going to do today is at the very center of Christianity. This is the real heart of it. It's not a sort of slightly trivial thing that you could tweak and nothing would change. This is the very essence of the Christian faith, which is that God loves you. God loves you and you have turned your back on him. And so have I. I said, actually, I don't, want to, I don't want you to be God. I want to be my own God. I want to worship another God. And in turning our back on God, we have made replacement gods and we've given ourselves to serve them, which has meant that at times we have made all kinds of mistakes. You could call them big things like evil or medium things like sins or little things like slip-ups. But we know what we're talking. We know we've done them. And some of those things have done enormous damage to other people. And some of them we have nearly got away with. But in doing them... We have separated ourselves from a God who loves us. And we have not done or could not do what was in our power to fix it. But what God has done is in Jesus Christ, he has taken on flesh. He's become human. He has then died as a substitute for us so that all of those things can be removed from the equation and replaced with victorious life because Jesus not only died but rose again on Easter Sunday so that you and I can live in him and receive his personality inside us as well, the person of the Holy Spirit, to walk in new, in new life with him. That's the Christian message, really, in, in a nutshell. And that's where Isaiah is going in this remarkable poem. And what he's particularly doing is to zero in on the, the issue of Jesus' substitutionary death for the world, which is what we celebrate on Good Friday. And this is the best news in the world, so we're going to spend some time to read it. it do we, we do have the thing? We don't have the thing. Okay, well, let's read it. Isaiah chapter 53, beginning at verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God. The message of the cross can be hard to believe. When you first hear it, it it doesn't sound right. It sounds like the kind of thing that couldn't be true of God or that we would never do if we were God. The way you know that is that when human beings do come up with religious ideas or religious systems, they never include God dying for their enemies. They come up with all sorts of other things. Well, if you do this and this and this and this and this, then that'll be okay. Or if you sacrifice this and this and this and this, then God will make it rain, or whatever it is. But they don't come up with a system in which God takes flesh, dies for his enemies as a substitute for you, and then rises again. That's not what humans come up with, because that's not what we would do if we were God. It's a very, very shocking idea when you stop and think about it, that God would die a substitutionary death. And that's where Isaiah 53 begins, with the surprise of the cross. The surprise, the shock, the astonishment, the what on earth are you talking about? And it begins in verse 1. You notice, who has believed what they heard from us? You would not believe it. When you heard the message of Christianity, don't worry, no one can notice. It's all, it's all fine, whatever that is. It, we'll just move on. Um, but Isaiah is saying, who, who would believe it? If you heard this message spoken, you would not believe it was actually happening. It doesn't sound true. So when I tell people what Christianity is, sorry, do we... Are we all good? Okay. When I tell people what the Christian message is, Isaiah is saying, you preach it and people don't believe you. 
Who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It doesn't sound right. It sounds implausible that God would do that. And the arm of the Lord is a phrase in the Old Testament that refers to God's mighty arm being shown in battle. In fact, we still use it a little bit like that now. In fact, you know, so I don't have arms that make this worth doing. But if I did, Charles pretty much does. Um, so flexing would, would, as you, would look impressive. Some people's arms change shape when they flex. Mine don't really. I'm just not gifted in that way. But if you do, there's something of like, this is a demonstration of strength and might, isn't there? You go, I'm doing this to show you that I am strong and I'm now going to come and deal with this problem and you'd better make sure you're on the right side of it. And that phrase in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord, is often used of God clearing away his enemies in battle, like in the Exodus. God comes and stretches out his arm his mighty arm, and destroys all of Pharaoh's armies and the drowned in the sea. That's the kind of thing that phrase usually means, the arm of the Lord. And Isaiah is saying, who would believe the way the arm of the Lord has been shown in the cross? If you heard the phrase arm of the Lord, you were expecting a massive, violent confrontation and a massive body count. And instead, you end up with a root out of dry ground, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the kind of person that people hide their faces from. That's not what you would expect, Isaiah is saying. No one believes me when I tell them what I've seen God is going to do. If I told people, do you know how God's going to save you and rescue the world? He's going to do it by a lone man carrying a cross on his back up a hill without any clothes on and slowly dying for the sins of the world. That's not what anyone would think God would do to destroy his enemies. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. So you are preparing yourself when you know the arm of the Lord is coming for a massive military showdown and instead you get something totally unexpected. When I was 22, I was shot in the face. Um, I was a, a BB gun, to be fair, but it still kind of hurts. Um, and uh, I was. I, like My friend, it was probably no further away than the other end of this platform. My friend Chris was convinced that there was no pellet inside the BB gun. We were in the kitchen of the flat we used to live in and no longer did, but some other friends did. And I'm standing here and he's standing here. And he says, no, I swear, man, there's nothing in it. And he pulls the trigger. I know it sounds silly because it's a BB gun, but seriously, if someone fires a BB gun at you from two yards away, it really hurts. Trust me, if it hasn't happened to you, I can promise you it is very painful. You would stop what you were doing. And I, of course, at this point, I make a scene about anything. So if somebody shoots me in the face with a BB gun, you're going to hear about it for some way. Ah, you shot me in the face, you shot me in the face. Big scene, right? Now, what we didn't realize was that, so the kitchen window is here, and down there in the station car park... There is a man who, I don't know, given that he's hanging around at that time of night in the station car park, may have been drinking, I wouldn't like to say. But anyway, he rings the police because he's seen somebody at Flat 310 Station Parade fire a gun at another guy who's then gone, ow, you shot me in the face. Now, there's a little Austin Powers, isn't it? You'd think, no, if he'd actually used a real gun, he wouldn't have a face, but that's what happened. And the guy rings the, riot, rings the police. This is not a preacher story that I'm making up. This is exactly true, right? In fact, there's someone in this church who's married to the guy who got woken up in a moment, as I will explain. So it is genuine. This actually happened. Um, So we don't know anything about it. We go home to bed because it's not our flat, and we don't find out about this until the next day. But a guy who does live in that flat gets woken up at three in the morning because his room is the one that opens out onto the fire escape, which is the sort of zigzaggy staircase thing that goes up the building. And he gets awoken up at three in the morning. Open up, open up, open up. And he opens his door 
and the police in full riot squad, I mean like helmets, guns, armour, the whole caboodle, arrive at his door at three in the morning. He wasn't even there when this incident happened, so he doesn't know what's going on. He's half asleep. And they come in and they say, so there's a gun on the property, there's a gun on the property, we've had reports of it, would you please show us where the gun on the property is? Obviously, he doesn't know this incident's happened, so he's not quite sure how to process what's taking place. But eventually, in his half-sleepy state, he clocks. There is a gun in the property, but it can't be that that's what they mean. But then he thinks that's the only explanation, and then he makes a very grave mistake. He reaches over to the BB gun and says, Oh, you mean this? Drop the gun! Drop the gun! And he's like, down this on the floor. (laughs) Eventually, they realize what it is that they've done. And he goes back to sleep with a great anecdote for the rest of his life. And they presumably go back to their families or whatever. And they say, oh, what was that? You know, it was a big showdown. And they presumably say some variant on what Isaiah said here, which is, you would not believe what we've just heard. Because we went expecting a military showdown and we ended up with a plastic pistol. And that was not what we geared up for. And actually, in a weird way, that's the surprise of the cross Isaiah is talking about in this passage. He's saying, I have geared up, as everybody would, when they hear the arm of the Lord. They think massive confrontation, violence, shootout. And instead, we've got this plastic pistol of a man wandering up a hill, naked, with a cross on his back. How could that possibly be the way in which God is going to destroy his enemies? To this day, when people come across the story of the cross, they react a bit like the police would have that night. And go, seriously? We got out of bed for that? That's not what we thought we were coming for. I read the, the line that was in the wardrobe to my son for the first time last year. He's, he was nine, and he didn't know how the story goes. So he doesn't know that Aslan is going to die for Edmund. So when he hears the story and the white witch says, your son is a, Edmund is a traitor, so I have the right to kill him, I stopped the story and I said, Zeke, what do you think Aslan is going to do about this? And Zeke said what I think we all naturally feel. He said, I think Aslan's just going to roar at the witch and that'll make it all okay. And she'll run away scared. And I said, no, Zeke, that's not what he's going to do. He's going to die instead of Edmund. I'll never forget what he said. He just went, what? There is something of that in the cross, is there not? That when you first hear this message, that what the God of love is going to do to save people is to die instead of them, there is something that makes you go, Who has believed what he heard from us? Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? When God's servant comes in power to redeem the world and defeat his enemies, Isaiah says he's going to be despised and rejected, the kind of person you don't even want to look at because they're so disgusting. And that's going to be God rescuing the world. Who has believed it? Consider the surprise of the cross. In the next three verses of the poem, we move on from the surprise. Isaiah moves us on to the substitution of the cross, the substitution of the cross. This is the essence of it, if you like. And if you had to, I think if you had to boil the Bible down to 10 verses, I would pitch that Isaiah 53 and verse 5 would be one of them. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with, by his stripes, we are healed. It's really saying the same thing four times in a row. Each one of those phrases has got a word denoting punishment or suffering. He was wounded, crushed, experienced chastisement and stripes. But each one of those four phrases also says he experienced that not for his own transgressions or iniquities, but for ours, for our shortcomings, not his. In other words, four times Isaiah is saying Jesus experiences a punishment as a substitute for someone else, namely me and you. 
Isaiah is telling us four times over, we are, we have sinned. We are guilty. We are people who have committed iniquity and transgression and who need healing. We are those people. And Jesus has come as a substitute and experience wounding, crushing, chastisement on our behalf. And as a result, we get none of those punishments and instead get to live the righteous life that he lived. And that's why the cross is so violent. That's why when the, the Bible doesn't wallow in the gore and neither, do, neither should we. But the cross is very violent. You know that. You stop and think for a moment. You think, why does this thing have to involve flogging and thorns and nails and muscles and tendons being torn and blood spurting everywhere? Why does that have to happen? Part of the reason is that what is he's doing in what Jesus is doing in dying that way is by taking all of the consequences of everything that I've, all the worst things I've ever done and the worst things you've ever done on himself. And there is something violent and degrading about sin. There is something about sin that destroys and rips and tears apart. And as a result, as Jesus dies and takes the consequences of that stuff on himself, there is a violence to it. There is a savagery and a grimness to it. It's also why the cross is so shameful. Why does Jesus have to die naked? Why does there have to be pulling of the beard and spitting and taunting and mockery and prophesy to us, Christ, who just hit you in the face? Why does that have to happen? Why is there all of that shame? Again, it's because there is something shameful about sin. Something shameful about the things that we do when we turn our back on God and pursue our own gods. And so because of that, the, the cross itself is an intensely violent and shameful thing because Jesus is taking, as a substitute, all of the transgressions and iniquities we had upon himself and receiving the punishment for them that we deserve so that we don't have to. I think about the worst things I've ever done. I don't like going there, but I do sometimes, and in this res- and only in this respect. And I think sometimes about those things I've done. I, could, I won't, but I could list them. I remember vividly where I was and why I said and did certain things. And I just think about them all piling up. And then I think about all of the worst things that the human race has ever done, many of whom didn't have some of the privileges I've had and as a result have committed more graphic distortions because of their circumstances, but actually the same heart behind it. And I think about them all being boiled down and poured out onto one person and I think that is almost an unthinkable weight of sin and judgment and it's an almost unpayable debt. In fact, I think that could only be paid by God himself. And of course, that's exactly what's happening here. And there was one man who experienced the substitution of Jesus for his sin, his transgression that day, more than anybody else. I think he probably has a more vivid understanding of this idea than anyone who's ever lived. And his name is Barabbas. Barabbas is a man, if you don't know the story, who uh, was a murder. He had committed murder in a revolutionary uprising in the city of Jerusalem. He was a contemporary of Jesus. And he was going to be executed by crucifixion on the same day as Jesus. It was a day that they were doing a job lot. They were going to get three of them done. And there's these two other guys. And then there's this guy Barabbas. And Barabbas is up on the capital murder charge in revolution against Caesar. But they have this custom that they're going to liberate. One of the guys is going to get off that day because they have a custom that on the Passover they let someone go. So they take a crowd vote and the crowd say, we want set Barabbas free and Jesus of Nazareth is going to die. And that means that Barabbas wakes up that morning, presumably shackled in some sort of primitive jail cell, I expect. And somebody comes into his cell at, I don't know, seven or eight in the morning. And he has got nothing in his diary for that day except die excruciating death in front of the city. 
Right? That is, and that's the end of your life. He's got no hope of anything. The Romans knew what they were doing. And they come in and somebody unlocks his cell or unlocks his chains or whatever it is and says, Barabbas, I know it sounds strange, but you are free to go. And he says, why? And they say, well, somebody else is going to die in your place. Someone else is about to be wounded for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. He's going to die and you are not. You can go home. I don't know that there's anyone in history who would have experienced a direct substitutionary sacrifice like that other than Barabbas. And yet, so Barabbas comes out of his cell, blinking in the bright sunshine, I guess, in the morning, and then thinks, what am I going to do? And I wonder sometimes, did he stay? I wonder, I wonder if that's what I would have done. We're never told. I don't know. Did he stay? Did he stay and think, I have to see who this guy is. I have to work out why somebody else would die for me. And I wonder if he watched what happened to Jesus. And I wonder if with every whip of the lash or with every nail that went into his hands and feet, Barabbas said, that one was supposed to be in me. That was, that was for me. He is being wounded for my transgressions. That's what's happening here. I'm not facing the punishment for what I've done. And he is. And he didn't do it. And I wonder if at the end of that day, he then went home to his wife. And she said, Barabbas, what are you doing? I, I had grieved for you. I didn't expect ever to see you again. And I couldn't face coming to see you die. And I wonder if he then said, in my place, condemned he stood. He died for me. He was crushed. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we've been healed. Friends, you and I are Barabbas, aren't we? That's what we are. I am Barabbas. I'm that guy. I'm the guy who's done the thing of which Jesus is innocent and yet doesn't experience the penalty for it. He was wounded for my transgressions and in carrying my sin and yours, he became as guilty as we are so that we might become as innocent and righteous as he is. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A swap, an exchange took place that day, which meant that everything Jesus deserved was given to you and everything you deserved was given to him just through faith in him and his death for us. Consider the substitution of the cross. And the third part of this Text is like sort of four sections here, really. And if you see, they're all in three verse sections in your Bible. And the third part, Isaiah presents us with the silence of the cross, which is a strange thing to think about for a moment. But Isaiah goes there. He says, it was eerily quiet in all sorts of ways, the death of Jesus for the world. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If you've read the Gospels, you'll notice this is one of the really weird features of the story. Why isn't Jesus saying anything? We've just done a Reach series where we talked a lot about how Jesus shared the Gospel with people. And we've seen him a lot in doing a lot of, you might even call banter, back and forth, debates. He's always quicker and wittier than the other person. He always wins. Yet here he is, charged with goodness knows how much nonsense. And instead of using his, his mind and his words to defeat them, he just lets it all come. Doesn't defend himself. And when he does say anything at all, it's a kind of cryptic, ambiguous comment that doesn't get him off the hook. Are you the Christ? He goes, you say I am. What's that mean? Why isn't he getting himself out of this? And I think the reason he's not getting himself out of it is because he wants it to be very clear that he is not suffering an unfortunate miscarriage of justice here. He is actually very deliberately and willingly going to the death that he has prepared for. 
This isn't a miscarriage of justice that happened by mistake. That Jesus was like, oh no, if he'd just, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, poor guy. This is Jesus deciding not to defend himself, even though he could and get off, in order to confront head on all of the sin that you and I have done and take it upon himself. He walked into it deliberately for reasons we're going to see in a moment. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he said nothing to defend himself. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And it can be good this week to take the time to allow the silence of the cross to just stay there for a moment and allow ourselves to ponder that eeriness, that quietness, the darkness, actually. We don't stay there, but it can be good to do that sometimes. I think Good Friday could be a context to do that. And Easter Saturday, I love Easter Saturday. It can be a, a, a day of thinking, this is what the world would be like if Jesus hadn't come back to the, from the dead. Imagine he would have died and then nothing. And it can be sometimes helpful not to stay there, but to pause for a moment and think there is a rightly a sense of silence and a weight and a darkness to this death that we need to allow to speak. Because some of us live our lives there a lot of the time with totally unanswered questions and grievous suffering that we can't quite make sense of and it isn't all smiles and we don't know quite why it's happening and we're having to wait for the day when all things will be made new and sometimes it can help us just to allow that silence to speak to us say what this is a quiet day the sun went dark the son of god went silent why did that happen it's a day of questions a day of waiting consider the silence of the cross but ultimately we don't stay there Because we're not Friday people, we're Sunday people. Because actually in the end, that silence doesn't get the last word, but it turns to exuberant noise of trumpets and shouts and hallelujahs and the like. So what we do as Christians is we note the darkness and we stare into it and we don't try and brush it away. Christians are not people who say, oh no, there's no problem of evil. Christians people say, there's a massive problem of evil. That's why Jesus had to die. If there wasn't any evil, you wouldn't have a problem. But there is. It, the world is ruined in all kinds of massively important ways, but God. That's what the Christian does. We look at Friday and we take it head on and we say, yeah, this is grim. There is a lot about this world that is a mess, but... And then we move from the silence to the joy of Easter Sunday morning. We are people who say, yeah, the darkness is here, the silence is here, but Sunday's coming. And silence is going to turn to noise and weeping is going to last for the night time. But joy will come in the morning. It always does. So what happens as chapter 53 finishes is it gets a lift in this last three verses. And you start considering the spoils of the cross, which is the sense of the the victory tribute that Jesus wins. And Isaiah is like this as a whole book. You read through Isaiah 53. It's the sort of very quiet and quite dark passage, which then towards the end begins to lift until chapter 54 is saying, sing, barren woman. And chapter 55 is saying, the whole world should come and have a feast here and it's not going to cost you anything. But Isaiah 53 is setting us up for that and towards the end of the chapter begins to lift and say, in doing this substitutionary, silent, surprising death, Jesus did not suffer a defeat. This was actually a victory and it was the most powerful victory the world has ever seen. Verse 12, therefore, because all of this has happened, therefore, God says, I will divide him, Jesus, or the servant, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. You know what spoils are? Right? Spoils are what happens when in the old days you'd fight. In fact, 
till fairly recently, you'd fight a battle with the, with the enemy, and then when you won, and there were dead bodies all over the field, you would go around and you would take tribute or plunder or loot from their dead bodies. It might be, could be animals. It could be they came with horses and we won, so we get to take the horses. Or it could be their armor. I go, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I'll have that male shirt. That works great for me. Or it could be provisions that they brought with them. It could be money that they were carrying in order to pay off an enemy or something. But you get to take it because you won. Now, we don't tend to do that now. And so it can be hard for us to get into that mindset. But that's what Isaiah is saying happened in the cross for Jesus. That Jesus is effectively entitled to the spoils of winning this battle against the powers of darkness. And therefore, Good Friday is not to be understood as a tragedy. It's a triumph, right? This is not a day that we're supposed to look back on and mourn as if we just lost someone who we love very much who died before his time. This is a day to look back to in victory. We don't have to look at Good Friday and say, well, that's the the downer day. And then Easter Sunday is, yay. That's like, this is the day of victory as well because this is the day in which Jesus was given the right to the spoils of battle, the tribute, the loot, the plunder from the enemy. He's able to take those things for himself because he has won a victory on a battlefield. It's a victory and not a defeat. And that's why Isaiah finishes with this idea, he is going to be given the spoils because he has died, because he has taken these things upon himself. Look at the language he uses in the last verse. If you've still got your Bible open, verse 10, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The idea that he's going to have long life, longevity. It's even a hint of resurrection, I think. Verse 10 again, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's not a word of defeat. Prosperity is a word of victory. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus is, in this picture, is dying on the cross, anguished in a sense, and yet able to look at the fruit, the spoils of victory, namely you guys and billions of others across history, and say, I am satisfied that I've done it. Because although this is anguishly, in some ways, I'm able to look and see the joy that is set before me and celebrate it and be satisfied that I have achieved it. We see the language of righteousness in verse 11. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous. Because the righteous one became sin for us, the sinful ones become righteous in him. That's how the the cross works. And so my sins and yours have filled up the sin bin of God's righteous judgment against my life, right? There's a whole load of stuff that you and I have done to just pour in trash in, in our lives. I've done it, you've done it, we do good things as well, but we do a lot of things that aren't good. And as we do them, we fill up the sin bin of God's righteous anger against all of those things. That's not the only dynamic in play, but it's one of them. And what happens is that at the cross, God in Christ takes all of them and pours them over his own head and is shaking the bin completely empty of everything inside it that might stand against us. He can then turn around and present us with a completely empty bin and say there is now nothing in here that could pour over your head, even if I wanted it to. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because it's all been poured over him. And so Jesus is entitled to the spoils of battle. He can make the many to be counted righteous. It is actually his right because he has conquered. He did not just die a tragic death. He died a victorious death in order that he might be able, having fought death and the devil and sin itself and won, he now gets a victory parade. He gets a lap of honor. He gets to pick up a trophy like they do at the end of a 
football cup competition and lift it high, the trophy probably being you and me and billions of others, and say, it is finished. I've done it. That's the way Jesus is going with the cross to say, that's why he finishes with this cry of declaration. Because he is entitled to the spoils of battle that he has rightly won in his conquest. Brothers and sisters, Calvary was not a defeat. Are you getting that? It's not a defeat. Good Friday is not a funeral. The cross is a day of surprise and substitution and silence, but it ends with the spoils of victory being handed to the one they call King of the Jews. Now to him who is able to do it far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this amazing gospel in which you send your son to come and represent us and to take all the consequences of all the things we've done so that the bin of sin is completely empty and then to give us new life, to rise again, to enable us to live victorious lives, to give us your spirit living inside us, to shape us and give us hope for the future. What an incredible message, Lord. It's the best news in the world. And we pray that we would be able to live this week in light of that news, to live as if it's actually true, to live the kind of lives that you've secured for us in this amazing substitutionary death that you died for us. We pray that we'd be joy-filled, that we'd be able to sustain and uh, given peace and strength for those of us who are suffering in the midst of some of these things, but that as we walk through, we would know the victory of God on our behalf, and we would rejoice. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.